Well, we are on part three of Life is a Stewardship. I can't really say turn in your books because a lot of what I'll be speaking on is not in the books. But if you remember the Lord Jesus, we're in Luke 16. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 24 to 31 this morning if you do want to open up your Bible. But we have uh, the Lord was rebuking the Pharisees for their self-deception in thinking that their wealth and their position in society was divine proof that they were spiritually righteous. And so to rebuke them, he presented them with a vivid and a very frightening description of what the afterlife would hold for them if they continued in their covetous ways and in their disbelief of him, the fulfiller of all the law and the prophets, which they, of course, claim to so meticulously adhere to but in reality, they did not. Well, in the account of the parable or the true life story of the rich man and Lazarus, he presented to the Pharisees a striking contrast, remember, between Mr. Uh, Purple Plutocrat, between an anonymous, flamboyant, very wealthy man and a poor and physically disabled man who was named for us. And what is his name? Lazarus, which means God is my help. Now, um, I cannot possibly, for those of you who were not here last week, I can't possibly review everything we talked about last week in the first part of this parable, but let's just kind of quickly review by reading the whole parable, and then um, I'll, I'll kind of review as I read it, and then we'll get into our new material for today. So let's start by just reading the parable that the Lord spoke, starting in verse 19 of chapter 16 in Luke's gospel. And Luke is the only one who um, recorded this particular parable. Jesus says, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared or ate sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And we said he actually was thrown at the rich man's gate. And he had all kinds of ulcerating boils all over his body. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, which is literally in the Greek, Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And remember, we talked about Abraham's bosom. Actually, the word for bosom is comfort. The same word we get the Holy Spirit, um, the comforter. It's at the side of. So Lazarus is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they would, which would pass from hence to you, cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from hence, thence. Then he said, that's the rich man, former rich man, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he, the former rich man, said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Well, we learn that sometime after the poor beggar, actually he wasn't really a beggar, he was a poor man who was cast at the rich man's gate. After he died, he was what? Carried. He had a heavenly escort into the section of Hades called Paradise or Abraham's bosom. And in time, because death is not a respecter of persons, it is the great common denominator of all men, in time, who also died? 
the rich man also died, but he had no heavenly escort to his afterlife abode. His soul instantly found itself in the place of torment section of Hades. Now, Hades, I don't think I mentioned this last week, but in the Old Testament, Hades is called, does anybody know? Sheol, exactly right. It's called Sheol in the Old Testament. Death was, we could say, death was actually a friend to Lazarus, but it was the greatest of enemies to the rich man. His time of torment and his time of suffering was just beginning. And sadly, tragically, reality, it would never, ever end. And it would even get worse because hell, the lake of fire, is far worse than even Hades. And I think I'll talk about that this morning. Um, I will. I'll talk about it right now. <laughs> one day, and I shouldn't laugh because it's such a serious, it's such a serious topic. But one day, I mean, this is the most serious topic you can ever talk about. Is the reality of hell. But after the millennial kingdom, after the literal one thousand year kingdom here on earth, when Jesus Christ will little, literally reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords death or the grave will give up all the bodies of the lost and Hades the torment section of Hades will give up all the souls of the lost who will then together bodies and souls appear before the Lord Jesus Christ himself at the great white throne judgment they will have their day in court only problem is no one who stands before Christ at the great white throne will be acquitted. All who will find themselves after their first death, their physical death, in the punishment compartment of Hades, such as this former rich man, will likewise find themselves, both body and soul, being cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Now, the former rich man in his earthly life may have been, um, I mean, in, in, uh, in Hades, may have been able to lift up his eyes and see something from the lighted part of paradise Hades. And did I mention this last week that I always pictured the two compartments side by side, but because of that, they probably more like this, because it says he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus, so he looked up. Well, he may have been able to look up and see what was going on in the paradise section of, of Hades, because he did. So there must have been light in the paradise section. Darkness, it doesn't say he saw anything in his section, but he saw light coming from the paradise section. But no one, no one will ever see even the hand before his or her face in the eternal lake of fire. Hell, or the lake of fire, will be far worse than what we're reading about, what we read about, what this man is tormented in in Hades. Um, because hell, we are told, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is a place of outer darkness. It's interesting that hell is described by Christ as a place not only of um, outer darkness but of unquenchable fire and that that's interesting because we think of fire as producing what light we think of fire fire does as we know fire fire produces light and yes yet hell is going to be outer total darkness and yet unquenchable fire no light. The fire of Hades and of hell, therefore, is not the kind of fire that you and I know of in this life. Fire in Scripture speaks of what? Judgment. It spe it, fire is symbolic of judgment. So unquenchable fire speaks of eternal judgment, never ceasing judgment, a penalty of judgment that is never, ever met as outer darkness speaks of spiritual darkness there is is going to be horrible heat from the fire but no spiritual warmth there is going to be fire but no spiritual light 
There will be thirst, but there will be absolutely no satisfaction. And there will be nothing to do forever and ever but to, to um, remember and to, Jesus tells us, weep and wail and gnash one's teeth forever. Now, I, got, I have been thinking an awful lot the last two weeks about hell and Hades and how little we actually hear about it. And it's interesting to me, as I was studying, I found out that most religions and cults do away with hell. Even a huge section of Christendom does away with hell and replaces it with something like purgatory. Or there's even this whole theology called restoration theology, where maybe in zillions of years, God will give people in hell a second chance. It's called restoration theology, but that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that it's everlasting. That means without end. And um, anyway, I wondered if the light of the paradise section of Hades, you know, when Jesus, after he died and, um, and, and rose from the dead, he went down into the paradise section of Hades and he took all the Old Testament believers and the penitent thief who was the very first New Testament believer to be in paradise. He had a unique experience because he went down to the paradise section of Hades and then went with Christ up into the third heaven. <laughs> but um, when he did that, I imagine that when Christ, who is the light of the world, entered into paradise, there with Adam and Abraham and Lazarus and all the Old Testament saints and that penitent thief, that the whole underworld lit up and all who were in the torment section of Hades had this one bursting moment of glorious light, you know, as the Shekinah glory of God filled the paradise section and took all those people with him. So, you know, ever since then, they've had total darkness. So the last thing they would have seen was that bursting of light from the one who could have been their savior. And they're in total darkness now because the light of the paradise section is out. There's no one in the paradise section of Hades anymore. They're, you know, now when we die, where, where do we go? Our soul goes instantly to be with the Lord. But as I've been studying, I thought, you know, that's going to happen again for them. Because when they, after the millennial kingdom and before the great white throne judgment, when their bodies come out of the graves and their souls come out of Hades, the torment section, to come together to stand before the great white throne judgment, who are they going to see one more time? They're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And it says that his countenance at that great white throne judgment will be so immense. I mean, the brightness, and he's in judgment then, you know, that brightness will be so immense that that is what burns up the earth and the atmospheric heavens as we now know them. It says they, they fled away from his presence. So there they are standing before him, seeing his light, seeing the one who is Lord. The first time in Hades they saw who could have been their savior. The second time they stand before him as Lord. And yet every one of them, that will be the last light they ever see because then they are cast eternally into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It's called the second death. They'll be cast eternally into Gehenna. And that just, it, it's just awful to think about. Those who, you know, have this idea that they want to die and go to hell because, um, you know, that's where all their friends are going to be. That is so totally absurd because not only, I mean, there's, there, you're not going to be able to see anything forever and ever. And part of the hell of hell is isolationism. It's the epitome of folly to want to go there. Even 
have you ever heard people who say, well, you know, Darwin, Charles Darwin was like this. The whole reason he came up with his evolutionism is because he couldn't stand the concept of hell because if he, he said, if there is a hell, that means my father is there and my brothers are there and many of my friends are there. So I can't stand that. I hate that doctrine. And so he came up with his, you know, his, his other doctrine, which is a total lie. But even if all your buddies and your friends and your mom and your dad and whoever is there, I've got news for you. They don't want you to join them there, as we see with this rich man. He didn't want his brothers to be there. It is a place of isolation and desolation and a place where one is just totally consumed with his or her own spiritual, physical, and mental torments. I think the worst part of the torment is not the thirst and not the heat. I think it's the mental anguish that goes on. There's no lavish merrymaking in hell. It is a place of eternal, solitary confinement. It's such a horrific place that it is not by any stretch of the imagination worth suffering all the pleasures all the ease, all the comfort, all the wealth of this entire world put together. If one person could have it all in this life, it still is not worth suffering hell in the next life. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Nothing, absolutely nothing, is worth the risk of hell. You know, if we're wrong, and they're right, big deal, we die, that's the end of it, or we all get to go to heaven somewhere. But if we're right and they're wrong, they have everything to gain and lose, don't they? And guess what? We are right because we base what we believe on this word. And if anyone knows about the reality of hell, who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the entire universe. He didn't create hell for man. He created for the devil and the fallen angels. But man, if he rejects him, he chooses his own destiny. And that's why by this parable, the Lord Jesus was again, as he did on so very, very many occasions, he was trying to share with mankind, not just the Pharisees, but with mankind, how real this place is and how desperately men should seek to avoid it. That's why he said, strive ye to enter in to end the narrow gate that leads to life. He is beseeching men, strive. The word strive literally means if you had a death sentence put on you, what would, and you were innocent, you know, what would you do to get out of that death sentence? You would do everything possible. And that's why he says, do all you possibly can. If there's anyone here and you're not sure about your salvation, don't leave here because of pride or something. You know, let's settle that. Let's nail it down today. Well, I want to mention just a few things in general before we get into looking at some of the specifics of this parable. First of all, this account, along with other scriptures, such as absent from the body and present with the Lord, refutes the unbiblical teaching of soul sleep or any state of unconsciousness that some cults and false religions have taught. Cynthia, she had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to her house this week. They will teach you soul sleep that between the time of death and the resurrection, the soul just goes to sleep. This parable, which is very likely a true story, um, doesn't teach that. Scripture, such as absent with the body, present with the Lord, does not teach that. There is other scripture as well. That is not true. Soul sleep is not true. By the way, Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that all the ungodly will be annihilated. So they teach annihilism, annihilation, annihilationism, which I never knew that before. But the ungodly don't go to hell. They're just annihilated. They go out of existence. Um, the bodies of believers such as the body of the next Lazarus that we will look at, Lord willing, next week in John 11, uh, may be said to have gone to sleep when they are separated from the soul. 
but that's just the Lord's way of saying, you know, the body's just going to be in the grave, just sleeping, because it is eventually going to be resurrected. But the souls of men, both saved and unsaved, do not ever, ever go to sleep. Even the souls of unsaved people do not go to sleep. The souls of Lazarus and the rich man and Abraham are very much alive, even though all three of those died physically. And this consciousness, by the way, is not good news for the unsaved, is it? That's why so many religions and cults teach otherwise, like annihilationism or um, nirvana. You know what nirvana teaches? I think, is that the Buddhist? Where they teach that, you know, when you die, you just become, you lose your personal identity. You're not you anymore. Uh, you just become part of the big oneness of the cosmos. It's like waves, you know, lapping up on the beach, and they, when they wash back, they just become part of the big ocean. So there's no personal identity. So consciousness forever is not good news for the unsaved because they will be tormented by being alive and extremely conscious of their torment. The former rich man could see and hear and speak and feel and think, and worse of all, he could remember. He was very much alive as he found himself in Hades, where he never, ever expected he would go. Remember what his theology taught him? <laughs> Pharisaic theology would teach him, well, he was Jewish. Of course he was. It was the Gentiles that would find themselves in Hades. I'm Jewish. My father's Abraham. We hear him bragging about that all the time in Hades. Still trying to, you know, go by his bloodline. Um, and Pharisaic theology would have told him that because he was rich, surely that meant he had the divine favor of God. So do not just simply trust in what your church teaches you or what you've heard all your life. Don't trust what other people say to you. You know, um, if it isn't grounded in this book, this is the only book we can trust because this is the word of God. Don't listen to those people who will say, oh, he's a good person. You're a good person. My brother-in-law who is so unsaved and now he's got terminal cancer. He thinks he's a good person. And he said most people are in general good people. And I thought, no, 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 that is not true. There is none good. No, not one. We People do not understand the holiness of God and how far we fall short of that holiness, that standard. So they'll say, oh, I'm a good person. God will let me in. Don't just go by what you've heard from other people and what even your particular church, you know, look to Jesus Christ and what the Word of God has to say. I cannot think of anything worse than to find myself one day, and I won't be, praise the Lord, but to find yourself one day separated from God and Christ. I mean, that, that right there would be hell forever. Not to be able to have communion with God and, and no love. I mean, God is love. Can you imagine hell? There's no love in hell. There's no God in hell. There's no fellowship in hell. No joy. No, no peace. What, and what suffering? I mean, forget the fire and the thirst. What suffering could be worse than just that? Annihilation would be better. Nirvana would be better. Anything would be better than that. Well, the first thing Jesus tells us about the former rich man in his torments was that he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, comforted at his side. Um, so in death, the former rich man not only knew Abraham, think about this, who he had never met, because Abraham died a long time before him, but he also recognized who? He recognized Lazarus. He, he could see them because in their section of Hades, called Paradise, at that time, there was light. Of course there'd be light. You know, God wouldn't put righteous people in darkness because he is light 
and he would, you know, they, they are light. So even in, in paradise, there was light. Now, apparently, the former rich man didn't see anything in his particular section, so his focus was on a far off what was going on in the paradise section of Hades. His rec recognition of those in another generation from himself as well as the man he had known in his life, Lazarus, tells us that you and I will recognize and be recognized in the afterlife. I've had that question asked. Will we know each other in the afterlife? Yes, we will. We will even know who people are who we have never met. Isn't that amazing? We'll just instantly know who they are. He knew that that was Abraham. And I think about um, the three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, how did they know who Moses and Elijah were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration? I don't know. But somehow, you know, we're, we're going to be a lot smarter in heaven. Isn't that good news? <laughs> that is good news, right? <laughs> than we are here. And also, uh, there will be no memory lapses of names. <laughs> I'm so glad for that because the older I get... I, I just can't remember names like I used to. And so we'll instantly know the names of all those whose lives ours crossed when we were here. And that simply tells us that we are going to have far greater knowledge and a far greater capacity for knowledge in the next life. And this is further demonstrated by the fact that Abraham had knowledge of the rich man's conduct, his, um, his stewardship with the good things that he had enjoyed on earth when he was living and he also Abraham also knew that Lazarus had suffered many evil things now does this mean that everyone in heaven today can see everything that is going on down here on earth how did Abraham knew how the rich man had lived and how did he know how Lazarus had lived does everybody is that the great cloud of witnesses and are they watching us or had Lazarus, who had died before the rich man, already told Abraham everything about what had happened on earth? So that when the former rich man died, Abraham knew all about him. Or is this just a parable where we cannot really get real dogmatic about certain things unless they are supported by other scripture? I don't know. <laughs> I report you decide. <laughs> Well, after lifting up his eyes and seeing Abraham and Lazarus afar off in the paradise section of Hades, the former rich man did something that he should have done while he was still on earth. He begged for mercy. Now who was the beggar? <laughs> he had probably never before given much serious thought to prayer, but now he prays, but it is too late. It's too late. And notice, he prays to the wrong one. Abraham couldn't do anything to help the man, even if he had wanted to. Abraham, you see, was just as locked into his place in the afterlife as the former rich man was locked into his place. Abraham, furthermore, was just a man, like all the rest of us, except we're women. <laughs> but he was a human, you know. He was a... Um, he was the soul of a human. He, he was a man of great faith, and he's called the father of the faith, but he was still just a man. The one the rich man should have prayed to is Jesus Christ, and he should have prayed to him while he was still alive on earth. The day of salvation was over for him. He should have pressed into the kingdom while he could have. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, no second chance. He was suffering just the beginning of eternal judgment, and already he was in torments. He cried out, and it was in a loud voice. He cried out for relief from his suffering, and, and notice how he did. So he, uh, first of all, he made his appeal, as I've mentioned, on the basis of his Jewish blood relationship to Abraham. What did he call him? Father Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. That was exactly what the, uh, and who is Jesus giving this parable for primarily? 
the religious rulers. That's exactly what the Jews, the religious rulers, always were doing. They were always making their blood claims to Abraham, thinking that because they were the descendants of Abraham through his God-promised son Isaac, that that was an automatic ticket for them to heaven. And, of course, the Lord was repeatedly trying to get through to them that it wasn't their blood relationship to, to Abraham that mattered, but their spiritual relationship to God. You know, Abraham was the father of faith. If you want to be a true son of Abraham, have the faith that Abraham had in God. Remember on how he answered them on one occasion uh, when they proudly had said to him, Abraham is our father. You know, we're going to get to heaven. Abraham is our father. He said, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. What were the works of Abraham? He believed in God, and he believed in God's coming Messiah, Savior. Um, so his works were works of faith. So this tells us that even in Hades, the unsaved will think that they should have favor granted to them because of their physical relationships and their works. Think about the many who the Lord Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, over in chapter 7 of Matthew, the Lord told us that many will stand before him one day at the great white throne judgment and cry out what? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works to which he will respond what? I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now think about it. Those are not people who just had just died and appeared before the Lord and go into his presence instantly after they died to ask for him to allow them to get into heaven. Lord, Lord. Those are people who will have been in the torment section of Hades some for a long, 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 long time who after the millennial kingdom is over are removed from Hades given their resurrected bodies and then appear before the great white throne. And as I said, all who appear before that judgment are already guilty, no exceptions, and then they are cast into the lake of fire, the second death. So what this tells us is that people like the former Old Testament rich man and like the many New Testament professing believers only, professing, not possessing, still, even after having suffered in Hades for some of them probably hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, even after being in Hades all that time, will think that they should deserve heaven because of who they are or what they have done. I don't hear from this rich man or from those many who stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and do that? I don't hear from any of them an admittance of sin. Do you? I don't see them falling on their face begging him for mercy, give me a second chance. No, they're standing there, Father Abraham, look at what I did for you. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that even after having suffered all that time in Hades, man still has his rebellion. And I got to thinking about that. And I thought, you know, I've always thought about people going to Hades and, and oh, thinking, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. You know, I, I, I know I'm a sinner and I repent. But then I thought, well, no, it didn't change Satan, right? After even being when he's cast into the bottomless pit, which is not the same as the lake of fire, it's another place. And some speculate that the great gulf fixed goes on down endlessly, and that's the bottomless pit. But you know, during the whole millennial kingdom, he is cast into the bottomless pit. And yet when the Lord, for his reasons, releases him after those thousands of years, you know what he immediately does? Starts a rebellion. What? with people who are always willing and ready to follow him. So it tells me that in Hades, no people do not 
get a new nature. And I thought, well, of course they can't get a new nature in Hades or in hell. Because who is the one who gives us the new nature? Christ. So part of hell is that I can never change. How would you like to have to live being a sinner all of eternity? I can't stand myself sometimes because I know what a sinner I am. And I've got the new nature and I'm still a sinner (laughs) saved by grace. But what torment to know you could never, ever change. And they don't even want to. It just boggles my mind. But the next thing we find in the man's plea to Father Abraham tells us not only how hypocritical he still is in Hades, but how proud and arrogant he is even in his torment. Notice who it is he asks Abraham to send to him to put just a drop of water on his tongue. Who does he ask for? He asks for Lazarus, a man who he had refused to help in his own life, a man he had allowed to to suffer terrible torment right there at his own gate. When he had the easy means, you know, to alleviate Lazarus's suffering, and yet he didn't. And he doesn't even talk directly to Lazarus. He talks to Abraham, send Lazarus. I don't see any apology to Lazarus, do you? Do you hear any apology from the rich man? I don't hear him saying, tell, please, Abraham, Father Abraham, tell Lazarus I am so sorry for my cold-hearted treatment of him. Please ask him to forgive me. Instead, he talks as though he is still a man of superiority who commands servants to do his bidding. He was used to that in his earthly life. He continues that way in his afterlife. He says, send Lazarus, which is not only hypocritical, but it is very self-centered. He would actually have Lazarus leave his place in paradise and cross into the flames of perdition simply to give him one small moment of relief from his torment. I mean, what if Lazarus couldn't get back to his section of paradise? You see, the rich man was still reflecting a, a social elite type of attitude, wasn't he? Shows he hasn't changed in his nature. Um, You know, where he's the important person and Lazarus is still the lesser. You see, what this tells us is that the torment of Hades and hell does not convert a person and give him that new nature in Christ. As I said, he'll never have a new nature. He will keep his old nature forever. And when, when you think about, I know when I studied Revelation, and, um, and I got to chapter 16, I think it is, it just, it just boggled my mind that even at the end of all those judgments, first of all, they have the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and, and then the bowl judgments, and when, one of the very last bowl judgments is poured out and great big huge hailstones are falling on people, and they know that is the wrath of the Lamb. They know it is God. Do you know what they do? Now, well, I, I would think I'd say, please, forgive me. You know, 100-pound hailstones are falling on earth after everything else the earth has gone through. And boy, we're beginning to mm, see some of the foreshadows, aren't we? But um, instead of falling on their face and asking for the Lamb's mercy, for God's mercy, and they know it's Him sending it, they blaspheme God. Do you know why Jesus says that in hell there is weeping and wailing of gnashing of teeth? Have you ever thought about gnashing of teeth, what that signifies? When do you gnash your teeth? When you're angry. They are angry at God for being there. There's no repentance. And there will be no prayers answered in hell. The man's request was denied. He had asked Lazarus, that if Lazarus could dip the tip of his finger in water and bring him a drop to cool his tongue. And, uh, but his request was denied. Now, you know, that told me something else. It told me that there is water, there was water in the paradise section of Hades, just like we read about the third heaven, that there is a pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the eternal heaven. But there was no water in the Hades section of, I mean, in the torment section of Hades. He didn't have water. 
what does water speak of? Water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of, of life, isn't it? Who, who is the water of life? It's a picture of the word, and there will be none of that in Hades. There is none of that, and there will be none of that. There is no water, but there is water in heaven because there's the presence of the Spirit and of the Lamb, the living water, and uh, forever the Word of God. Well, it was remembrance time. Abraham began his response to the man's plea with the words, Remember, son. And that word remember is says a lot because memory will be a great part, as I said, of the torment of hell and Hades. Hades is the first place, you know, the temporary abode, and hell really is the lake of fire, the permanent abode of the unrighteous. But the unsaved will have to remember for eternity the good things that they had been blessed with in this life, you know, like friends and family. It was interesting to me as I read through this parable how much family is mentioned. You know, and I think I told you wrong last week. I said Lazarus had the five brothers. And I got that all grouped up. Of course, he didn't have the five brothers. It was the rich man who had the five brothers. But he said, Father Abraham. And he talked about his five brothers. And he said, send them to my father's house. You know, family is so important. But think about hell. There, you know, no family. So um, part of that is remembering family, remembering friends, remembering things that they took for granted, like light. How often do we take light for granted? Every day, unless you're losing your sight and you know how important and valuable it is. Um, and love, they took love for granted. They took water for granted. And uh, food, and memories of things past, and, and, and the torment of what might have been. And, and, and uh, just think, if, if those kind of memories can be tormenting in this life, we look back and think well what could have been and what we lost if that's painful think what it will be like for the souls of those in eternal punishment and they will have their minds they will think you know to be able to remember he said remember son Abraham reminded the man that he was reaping what he had sown he had an en he had enjoyed for himself all the good things in life you know God lets the sun shine on not only the right the just but the unjust doesn't he He's made this beautiful world for, for everyone. But this man had neglected all those wonderful blessings to, you know, I mean, he had enjoyed those good things, but to the neglect of his own soul. He had been a very, very selfish steward. He had uh, determined his own destiny by leaving God out of his life. And now neither his character nor his destiny could be changed. The tables were turned because now it was Lazarus who was being comforted while the rich man was being tormented. And besides, Abraham went on to say, he said, even if either he or Lazarus wanted to help the suffering man, they were unable to do so because between them was what? A great, and in the Greek it's great, gulf fixed. And the word gulf, my husband said, don't say gulf. I always say gulf, but it's not gulf, it's gulf. Is the, in Greek, it's the word chasm. And uh, it sounds to me like there would have been volunteers to, you know, the people in the paradise section have the new nature because they're saved, okay? So they have mercy and compassion. So if they could have... Abraham or Lazarus or anyone else over there probably would have crossed over with not just a drop on their finger of water, but a whole bucket load. But Abraham said um, that there was this great chasm fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you, what? Verse 26. Cannot. Cannot. They can't. We'll talk about that word more in a minute. But uh, I want to read to you something that Dr. John Phillips wrote in his commentary about the word gulf <laughs> or chasm. And this is so interesting. Now, who was Luke? He's the only one who gave us this parable. And who, what was he in his profession? He was a Greek physician. 
Now, he used for the word chasm a medical term, which is just like him. And it is a word that literally means an open wound. Between you and us, there is a great open wound. And Dr. Phillips said, and boy, I had light bulbs going off when I read that. Uh, He said, man, that explains it. Abraham was saying that between you and us, there is a great open wound. What was that great open wound that separates believers from unbelievers? Is a wound that was made deep into the Savior's side. It was a wound of the, you know, the nails in his wrists and in his feet. God sees that wound on his son, and his wrath burns against the sins of all mankind because collectively we are the ones who drove those nails and drove that spear into his son's side. So what is it that keeps a person out of heaven? Two compartments totally separated with a great chasm between them. So no momentary surge of of human sympathy can do anything to change the fixed will of God. You see what I'm saying? This means that there's, even though Abraham and Lazarus might have wanted to help out the people in the torment section, it means that there's no hope whatsoever of deliverance from hell. Nothing can ever be done to get a soul out of Hades or the lake of fire and into God's presence in heaven. One's destiny for all of eternity is settled when? In this life. And you know, you see people just going on, da-da-da-da-da, la-di-da, through their little lives, not realizing how terribly important this life is and the one decision of this life, which is just to, to strive to enter in the narrow gate through Jesus Christ. There is no eventual graduation or parole. There is no purgatory or suspended sentence. There is no such thing as restorationism. Separation from God is eternal. It is just totally indescribably fearful to consider. And those who go there do so because of choices made in this present life, which should put the, you know, the fear of God in every man, every woman, every young person. I mean, ladies, if you're saved and you know so, please do all you can for your children and your spouses. I, whatever it takes, strive, strive, strive to get them to understand how important it is this life we only get one opportunity and our next life is based on the decisions of this life i'm sorry i'm so emotional but i think you would be too if you're in my shoes this is a difficult subject well having had his personal request for relief denied the former rich man then went on to try to uh plea had a second part of his prayer for his brothers. Now, if he had not been so self-centered, who should he have prayed for first? He should have prayed for his brothers first, but uh, he prayed for himself first. But his second plea is, I pray thee, therefore, Father, you see, he's still trying to play on his Jewish bloodline, that thou wouldst send him, who? Lazarus, um, that they to my father's house for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment now of course we we still find that this fellow is praying to the wrong person because no saint no matter how godly answers prayers period don't pray to saints pray to God don't pray to saints it's God alone who answers prayers but of course it's too late for him Now, it's interesting that he did not say, well, at least when my brothers get here, we can have a good old time partying. He didn't say that. He didn't want his brothers there. And notice that the former rich man wants Lazarus again to be his little errand boy, doesn't he? 
He still looks at himself as the upper-class individual who can use such a man as the once poor Lazarus to do his bidding. He also thinks highly of himself and that he is really asking for special treatment. Why should his brothers get any more uh, warning than everyone else gets? Well, because it's him, you know, and he's important. Also, the former rich man's request, I think, tells us something else about Lazarus. Do you think about this? What does this tell us about Lazarus? I believe that the, and of course I can't be dogmatic about this, but that the reason the former rich man wanted Lazarus to be the messenger to testify to his brothers is because he had heard Lazarus testify before. I think he had heard Lazarus preach to him every time he passed back and forth through his gate. I think that Lazarus was there beseeching him to repent of his sins and turn to God for salvation. Maybe the rich man had uh, gotten too uncomfortable with hearing Lazarus preach at him. And um, every time he passed to and forth from his house. And maybe he purposely withheld food scraps to get rid of him faster. I don't know. You know, this is speculation. But it's interesting. Why? You know, he asked for Lazarus. Why didn't he ask for Abraham? Don't you think his brothers would have listened to Abraham more than Lazarus? I think it speaks of Lazarus being a mighty fine preacher, is what I think. So now the one he wants to return from the dead and preach to his own living brothers is, is Lazarus. And what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that people in Hades have a concern for the lost, but part of their added torment is that they can do nothing about it. They can do nothing about it. This rich man would forever be tormented by his own example uh, uh, to his brothers. For he had showed them, and if they're still in his father's house, these sound like they were younger brothers, he would have showed them, shown them nothing but how to live for self. And now he is stuck living eternally with self as his own companion. And that's another part of the torment. To live forever with your own sinful self. And only with your own sinful self. Like Esau, those in hell will be tormented by the fact that they bartered away eternal happiness for what? A mere bowl of oatmeal? Hell, one man said, hell is truth known too late. If Lazarus, who the brothers probably knew had died, you know, when the brothers went back and forth to their rich brother's house for his daily sumptuous feasts, they would have seen Lazarus uh, and they would have known he wasn't there anymore that he had died so when Lazarus showed up again on, on earth and told them what went on in the next world surely his brothers would listen to him that's the rich man's thinking is that what you think would happen not at all if just think if Laz- I know I keep saying just think, <laughs> but think about all this. If Lazarus did show up from the dead, and there he was, alive again, and he went to those five brothers and told them that their rich brother was in Hades, what do you think they would do? They would likely try to persecute him. Or first of all, I think they would accuse him of fraud, and of trying to scandalize and slander their noble, deceased brother. Of course he's not in Hades. You're a liar. You're a fraud. Our brother was rich. That shows God's approval on his life. Uh, You know, he tithes regularly to the synagogue. Our brother isn't in Hades. You're a liar. And they would try to not only persecute him, but silence his testimony. Don't you know that that's what they would do? I know that that's what they would do because that's exactly what the Jewish brethren did to a Lazarus who was raised from the dead and what they did to Christ who was raised from the dead, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. Not only did they try to silence and accuse Jesus of being a fraud and uh, persecute him and, well, not persecute him, he was already dead and resurrected, but they accused him of being a fraud, didn't they? Even though they really knew, the Jews knew, but they lied about it. And who else did they try to silence? 
Lazarus of Bethany. Tried, they even wanted to kill him and shut him up. So I know what they would have done if this poor, poor Lazarus was raised from the dead. They would not have listened to him. Abraham's answer is so profound. When he says they have Moses and the prophets, that's the first five books of Scripture and the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets, he says they have Moses, let them hear them. What a fitting honor the word that the, this gives the word of God. What a fitting honor to the word of God this answer is. The Jewish brothers, still alive, they didn't need Lazarus when they had Moses and David and Daniel and Ezra and Ezekiel and Joshua and Jeremiah and Isaac and Isaiah and all the rest of the prophets. And all of them spoke of who? Christ. If you've never studied the Old Testament, I've got news for you. Every page of the Old Testament speaks of Christ. It's all about him. He says, let them hear them and they will t- learn the truth about eternal abodes. There is more than sufficient warning in the scripture to tell sinners how to repent and to be saved. The scripture contains all that we need to know in order to be saved. Miracles have no effect on men's hearts if they will not believe God's word. Did you hear that? Miracles will have no effect on the heart of men if they will not hear and believe his word. It is not more evidence that is needed uh, uh, to make men repent, but it's more conviction of heart to respond to what has already been revealed. The dead could not, even if dead could come back from Hades, they could not reveal any more to us about salvation than what the Bible already tells us. Did you know that? They couldn't tell us any more than what we already know. I mean, yeah, they could tell us how dark it is, but we already know that. We, they could tell us how horrible it is, we already know that. They could tell us how to get saved, but we already know that. Everything is told to us. The person who has the Bible and can read it and still waits for more evidence to convince him or her is deceiving himself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of God. After all, the scripture is written by the one who not only stepped out of eternity to become one of us and die for us, but he also rose from the dead and returned to eternity and has told us how to follow him there. He knows what he's speaking about. Now, if we simply took the, um, if we simply look at the former rich man's request as loving concern for his yet unsaved brothers, we can overlook something important that is going on here. If you just say, oh, well, he's really concerned about his brothers, you would miss really what he is saying here is his attack on God. In effect, he is saying that God didn't do enough to get his own attention or he wouldn't be where he was in Hades. Listen to how he, how he responded to Abraham's statement. Abraham said, they, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. How does he answer Abraham? Very disrespectfully and very strongly in the negative. He says, no, Father Abraham. He shows himself as a disrespectful son. I mean, if your son said to you, if you're the dad, or you're the mom, all right, you're the mom's. If your daughter said to you, no, mom, is that showing you respect and honor? No. He's not showing any respect to the one he claims is his father. And who was it that he was really disagreeing with? Whose word was he not hearing? One of the very prophets of God, Abraham, the father of faith. Even in his torment, this man does not listen to the voice of God through his prophets. And then he goes on to really attack God himself. He says, in effect, no, Father Abraham, you're wrong. Moses and the prophets are not sufficient. He demonstrates his disbelief in the saving power of Scripture. And notice how we then find the uh, show us a sign that we may then believe philosophy of the, of, the, um, of the Pharisees. The excuse, I should say, not philosophy. Weren't they always saying, show us a sign? 
Jesus did everything under the sun for them with all those miracles and everything and all his wonderful words that, that were so powerful. And they kept asking for more signs. Well, that's exactly what this former rich man is doing in Hades. He's saying, show, show them a sign that they might believe because the word of God isn't sufficient. He tells Abraham what it will take to get his brothers to repent. Send them someone from the dead. Send them Lazarus to testify. And then I know, yeah, then surely they'll repent. What he's really saying is that God didn't do enough for him. He's saying that he didn't have a fair enough chance. The scripture wasn't sufficient to get his attention. God should have communicated more directly with him. Um, or he, you know, and then he wouldn't be in this place of torment. He was saying, my destiny here in Hades is not my fault. It's God's fault. If he would have sent me somebody from the dead to talk to me about the reality of this place, I would have listened. I would have repented. That's what he's saying. And he says, now, at least, you know, yeah, didn't do it for me, so at least do it for my brothers. <sighs> Did you know that hell will be full of God blamers? Like I said, you know, they'll still be raising their fist at God, blaming God. Oh, yeah, they're going to be forced to bow the knee, and they're going to be forced to confess his lordship. But they're not going to do so willingly and lovingly. They're going to do so because they have to, because he is Lord. But they will not love him. They will not submit to him. They will not surrender to him, even after billions of years in the lake of fire. If you let them go, they would start a rebellion with Satan all over again. That's how true the sinful nature of man is. You know what man doesn't understand, as I said before, is the absolute holiness of God. And so like so many people yet alive today who say, you know, I'll believe God. I had a grandmother like this. Oh, yeah, I'll believe what you're saying, Catherine, if God will just give me a sign, you know. If he'll, if he'll do something specifically for me, like write my name with the clouds, you know, or send an angel to speak to me, or uh, hit me with a bolt of lightning, or all these little things. Um, if he'll do that, I'll believe. But otherwise, my unbelief is his fault because he just hasn't done enough to gain my attention. Baloney. God has spoken to man not only through his creation, but he has spoken to man in history. And he has spoken to man very, very, very explicitly in his word, which is clear, powerful, and sufficient. And above all, he has spoken to man in his son, who, by the way, did rise from the dead to tell us about the next life and even gave his own life so that we would never have to suffer what we have been talking about this morning and that still wasn't good enough for those Jewish brothers who all, were already set in their unbelief Abraham says that if a person will not hear Moses and the prophets they will not only not repent but they won't even be persuaded of their need for repentance, though one rise from the dead. No one needs added experiences to validate Scripture. And we today have even more than the rich man and Lazarus had, and I mean, and his brothers had. Because what do we have more than what the rich man had? We not only have Moses and the prophets, we have the entire New Testament. We have the complete account of the one who rose from the dead. What people need to do is not go running out there seeking for experiences. What they need to be doing is listening to the word of God. I will never apologize for teaching the word of God. Even if we have to take a million years to study the life of Christ. <laughs> we'll have to just go on in the next slide. The former rich man's presence in Hades was completely, completely because he had not listened to the word of God. And he was Jewish. I, went, I bet he went to the synagogue every week and went in one ear and out the other ear. 
and he never repented of his sins before he died. Even in the torment of Hades' flames, we find he has not changed. He still did not believe God's word was sufficient for his salvation. He did not uh, believe that he deserved his punishment. It was God's fault because he hadn't done enough. He still put himself first. He still thinks of Lazarus as an errand boy to serve his needs. And he even argues with God by refuting the truth of Abraham's words. This tells us that the punishment of the lost sinner is not remedial. They don't get redeemed, you know. They're, it's not, uh, what are they told when they're in prison? Is that remedial? What is the word I'm looking for? When they're in prison and they try to reform them. Hell is not remedial. It does not ever, ever improve them. Hades and the eternal lake of fire are not hospitals for the sick. They are eternal prisons for the condemned. And no one there ever, ever changes. There is no presence of God. There is no convicting work of the Spirit to repent them and cause them to repent and to change. There is no love. There's no peace. There's no joy. And there's no hope. And I don't want any of you to ever find yourselves there. So please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, what shall it gain a man? I mean, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Everything that we have discussed here this morning confirms to us, I hope and pray, the importance of your word. Faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I thank you that you made it possible by your grace for my ears to hear the word of God. Thank you that your word repeatedly and vividly warns us about two afterlife destinies and that the one great inescapable responsibility of life that we have as good stewards of this life that you have given to us is to take you at your word. And Father, I pray, therefore, that each of us will believe your word because it alone is able to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.